Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others say you're one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And Jesus sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Ghost, our souls inspire and lighten us with your celestial fire. For if you are with us, nothing else matters. And if you are not with us, nothing else matters. Be with us, we pray, in the name of your beloved. Amen. I am so happy to be here. I've been looking forward to this for so long. Uh, big church. We only have little church where I live. Um, I want to thank Danielle in particular for inviting me, your scholar in residence, and Matthew Ruffner, your senior pastor, for sharing this place, which is a really sacred space. And to trust a stranger with it is an act of courage. But he heard me at nine, and I'm still here, so... It's really not a small thing to speak in the context of worship. It's different from a speech. Um, there are children listening in. Adult hearts are unlocked for a little while, open to some break in the bad weather news, so I don't take this for granted. I did, however, look you up. I always look up what we believe on a church website before I decide if it's safe to go inside. I'm usually ready for at least a dozen paragraphs on God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, human nature, the nature of the church and its role in Christian life, scripture, sin, salvation, baptism, Lord's Supper, the second coming, bodily resurrection, eternal life in heaven, and where I live, the church's position on pre- or post-millennialism. One church in my county offers 12 entire pages of clarification. <laughs> so clicking on Preston Hollow's vision statement was like being offered a glass of spring water instead. It's somewhere on your bulletin. Our vision is a world trusting that all belong to God and living like we belong to one another. Oh, thank you for that. It can't be easy, but it's clear, and it made me feel welcome here before my plane ever landed at the airport yesterday. There are other things on the church website, if you've been there, like a Presbyterian glossary for people who don't know how to use synod or session in a sentence yet, or who want to know more about what makes Presbyterians different from other kinds of Christians. I am an Episcopalian, which means I learned how to use the words vestry and diocese instead of session and synod. And I also promised to respect the leadership of my bishop and my ordination, very unpresbyterian. 
as are a lot of other things Episcopalians do, like kneeling to pray, crossing ourselves a lot, recognizing seven sacraments instead of two, way too Catholic for most Presbyterians. My interest while I'm with you, both this morning and in the evenings to follow, is to explore how our differences don't have to work against our belonging to each other, especially if we do truly believe that we all belong to God. That is so much easier to say than it is to live. But our differences may even be proof of God's design, as in the early biblical story of the Tower of Babel. There was only one people in that story, and they all spoke one language, so there was nothing to prevent them from getting together to build a great city with a tower that went all the way into heaven. The story says they did it to make a name for themselves so no one would mess with their single-mindedness and scatter them over the face of the earth. When God noticed what the one people who spoke one language were doing, though, God shut the project down. In paraphrase, God said, if they get away with this, there will be no stopping them. So God did exactly what the people were trying to prevent. God scrambled their language and scattered them over the face of the earth. I was taught for so long, I don't know if it's in that children's Bible, that this was divine punishment for the sin of pride. But I think there are a lot of other ways to read it. And at least one of them is that it's a story about God's evolving plan, God updating the divine will. Um, After seeing how people who were all alike could get up to a lot more mischief than if they had perhaps been different, God decided it would be better for them to have to stop on a regular basis and say, wait, wait, I don't understand what you're saying. I don't know what you mean. Could you say that again? Just try saying it a different way. Maybe you could use your hands. First thing people would understand under the new plan was that there was more than one way to say important things. Torah, Dharma, Gospel, Quran. Sometimes people were pointing at the same thing and sometimes they were not. But just trying to explain the words they were using to each other might slow them down enough to think about what they really meant. I once asked a bunch of undergraduates to write down on an index card what they meant when they said God and I got back way more than 22 answers what do you mean when you say God there are so many words Allah Adonai Brahman Holy Trinity this wasn't a problem when there was only one language people just assumed they meant the same thing when they used the same word which was not the case at all But speaking the same language had allowed them to hang on to that illusion longer than was good for them. Then God came to their rescue and confused their speech. By updating the divine will and creating a world of people who spoke different languages, God chose variety over uniformity. God created the conditions for multiple interpretations of everything that required speech to talk about. There was no longer one right way, one right word to say a true thing. There were a lot of ways to say it. Even when those words pointed to very different things, it was still possible to see how deeply they touched the people who were saying them. When we talk about God, one of my teachers said, we're like oysters 
lying in tidal beds trying to explain ballerina's knees. <laughs> Richard Rohr said, we are like people pointing at the moon who persist in arguing about who has the best finger. <laughs> the prophet Isaiah quoted God as saying, I don't think the way you think, the way you work, isn't the way I work. This doesn't mean we give up. Faith is always seeking understanding. The catch, I think, is to hold our understandings as our understandings. Even the revealed truths that have come to us in different languages and cultures and times. Because when we confuse human and limited understandings with God's unlimited truth, we're going to have a miserable time getting along with other people who are doing the exact same thing. You can point in any direction right now and see the consequences of that in real time. For Abrahamic people of the book, Jews and Christians and Muslims, this means turning our backs on our own sacred texts, willfully ignoring the truth that there's only one source from which we all come and to whom we all belong. So why do we, why do people persist in trying to get other people to use their language? Since I only have time for one reason this morning, this is the one I want to talk about, and it reflects me. I think we persist because getting right about God is hugely important to us, and our language is the only one we have to do that in. But to own a limited understanding of the divine so that there's room for other people's limited understandings, that doesn't feel humble to me. It feels sort of like failing to defend the faith, failing to stand up for God. Which is why I chose Mark's text today about Jesus, who has just, by the way, fed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish, my math's not wrong. He did it twice, four, then five. Um, he's endured a confrontation with people of his own faith about whether he's the real deal and who want a sign from heaven for that. Makes you wonder if they were at the meal. He's healed a blind man at Bethsaida by the sea, and he's headed north to Caesarea Philippi when he asks his disciples what they have been hearing about them. him. He, he doesn't say, who am I? Or who do people, um, he does say that. He says, who do people say that I am? And they give him straight answers. Some say John the Baptist, who's dead, by the way, so it would be John the Baptist come back to life. Elijah, who's passed on, so it would be Elijah come back to life, or one of the other prophets. And the answers all make sense, given the way people thought about God's real deal at that time. Jesus had likened himself to a prophet before. Plus, the disciples have no skin in this act of the game. They're just telling Jesus what they've heard. Then he asks them who they say he is, and everyone shuts up, shuts up. Who wants to get that wrong, right? Who wants to offer the teacher a chance to teach at their expense? No one was willing but the guy who was always willing to be the first with his hand in the air, and Peter got it right this time. He said, you are the Messiah, which sounds like the right answer to me. But Jesus did not say that's the right answer. 
Instead, Mark says, he sternly ordered the disciples not to say a word about the conversation to anyone. Then he went on to tell them what was in store for him and for them when word finally got out. It's just as interesting as the first story, and I think also open to more than one understanding. The one I've heard, maybe you have too, most often is Jesus wasn't yet ready for the baggage that came along with the title Messiah. Not the expectations, not the testing, not the extra, what, eyes on from Rome. And not the suffering, especially, that he could see rolling out ahead of him as if it had already been written down. The time had not yet come for him or for his followers, so he silenced them because if they stuck with him, it was going to happen to them too. I'm interested in another part of his question to them, and it doesn't show up in English, but the title that Jesus chose for himself was not Messiah, It was son of man. And it's my understanding if we read this in Greek, he would say, who do people say the son of man is? Shows up first time in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus says foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then I've been counting for you all week through different English translations. In the Revised Standard Version, Jesus refers to himself that same way, Son of Man, 28 more times in Matthew, 14 times in Mark, 25 times in Luke, and 12 times in John. No one else ever calls him that. It's a phrase that shows up only on his lips. Paul never uses it. James never uses it. Peter in none of his epistles uses it? What's that about? And why, if Peter was paying attention, didn't he give that answer himself? Who do you say you are? You said it yourself. You are the Son of Man. I don't know what to make of it, but I really like it. I like the idea that there's more than one way to say what is deepest in us about what is most important to us and so far beyond us. That even Jesus spoke of himself differently than his closest followers did and that his identity was not rooted in a title but instead rooted in who he was to them. When Danielle and I first talked about my coming here, she put me on the weekly mailing list for praying in the Celtic way, which led me back into relationship with the three patron saints of Ireland who would have walked in here and said, oh, we're home. Patrick, Bridget, Columba, who brought Christianity to Ireland with no bloodshed, no lives lost. That's unparalleled. They did it by working with the traditions that were already there. They didn't destroy old pagan sites. They didn't demand the abandonment of old druidic ways. They built on them instead, honoring their importance to the people and then building new meaning into them. They adopted festivals from the pagan calendar and made them their own. They preserved the tales of the Irish bards and turned some of the old gods into Christian saints. They spoke the language. In a long poem from the 6th century attributed to Columba, he concludes by saying this, My druid is Christ, the Son of God, 
Christ, the son of Mary, the great abbot, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. That's a lot of titles. I chose it for the Druid part, thought a little shock value would be helpful this morning. But what that list of titles doesn't include is Messiah or Savior or Lord. But the people Columba wrote for, they heard something they recognized and nobody died when the gospel came. I grew up in Druid Hills, a leafy suburb of Atlanta near Emory University. I never thought twice where the name of my public high school came from, though I could see the hills for myself, and I might have guessed the rest from all the trees. There's no agreement on the earliest meaning of Druid, but one guess is it comes from two old Irish words meaning oak tree and to know. So you wave a magic wand over that and you get knower of oak trees, which would make some sense for Druids, the legendary leaders of the Irish people who met in sacred groves of trees. There's not a lot else to know about the ancient Druids because their culture was oral on purpose, handed down person to person, embodied wisdom, because that was the best way to make sure it didn't fall into the wrong hands. But what we do know from other sources, like royal sources, is that the Druids of Columbus' time had powers that surpassed the powers of kings. A Druid could break up a battle launched by two opposing kings simply by stepping onto the battlefield to keep the armies apart, and they would cease. The Druids could exile people from community for breaking sacred laws. Kings didn't do that. They could perform amazing feats of what? Observation and explanation about the natural world. They were like walking encyclopedias about how people could work with nature instead of against it. If you find out everything you can about them, the list goes on and on. They were the poets, they were the philosophers, they were the botanists, the astronomers, the healers, the mediators, the judges, and the warriors of their time. So my question for you is, was Columba wrong to say his druid was Christ? I was taught syncretism is a bad thing when you go combining religions. Did the druid part of Columbus' phrase, did that cheapen the Christ part? Did he fail to defend the faith by using a word from another faith to describe the epitome of his faith? Or did he pick the highest words he could think of from all the languages available to him, putting them together so that the people listening to him might also come together instead of being driven apart? Entirely for you to decide. But I think it's a big deal in a world where people are calling Jesus their mother, their guru, their Obi-Wan Kenobi, their gangsta, their potter, their path. So many languages, so many fingers pointing at the moon. I think that's what we have most in common, that we are so different from each other with at least some of us believing this is not a deviation from the plan, but the plan at its best, calling us to value one another, all these images of God. 
more highly than we value our limited ways of thinking and talking about God. It'll never be easy, but it's clear there's only one authority about the being of God, and it's not us. Meanwhile, the Son of Man enters our lives in so many different ways, meeting each of us and all of us in different ways that we need to be met. If you ever run into him on the road and he asks you who you say he is, I hope you'll give it your best shot using the best words you can call up and then trust him to handle the rest, to know your heart. I say all this in the name of God's beloved who goes by many names. Amen.